Welcome to the St. Andrew's Sunday Morning Sermon Podcast. You can connect with us online at www.gosaintandrew.com. Today, our reading comes from what I would describe as a meaningful yet complicated letter in the New Testament, the letter of Paul to the Ephesians. Ephesians belongs to a grouping of six Pauline letters, Ephesians, Colossians, 2 Thessalonians, 1 and 2 Timothy, and Titus, which scholars call the Deutero-Pauline letters. That's a fancy way of saying we're really not sure that Paul wrote the letters. When examining Ephesians, the use of extraordinarily long, complex sentences, relative clauses, redundant expressions, and distinctive terminology leads us to believe that it is more likely that a disciple of Paul wrote the letter in Paul's name, probably after the apostle's death. I know this may sound odd to 21st century ears, but this practice was common in the ancient world. To the ancients, authorial attribution was regarded as correct and non-deceptive if either the content and wording or just the content of a particular text could be traced back to the author in whose name it carried. Another interesting feature of Ephesians rests in the fact that no single event or crisis can be discerned as an occasion for the letter's creation. The content of the letter is general in nature, and for that reason, some have, some have suggested that the letter was intended for many churches and not a single congregation. Finally, most scholars agree that Ephesians was written in the last third of the first century CE. In Ephesians, as well as in Colossians, Paul's image of the church as the body of Christ has been expanded to include the idea of Christ as the head of that body. But while in Colossians, attention is focused primarily on the cosmic status and role of Christ, the one great theme of Ephesians is the cosmic status and role of the church. In Ephesians, the word we translate as church, ecclesia, is never used to mean a single local congregation. It always references the church universal. The church is understood to be part of the unity of all things, which Christ's sovereign rule represents to be in a sense of the crowning instance of that unity. For in and through the church, the Gentiles have become fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise. In the section we will hear today, the letter explores the application of the gospel of reconciliation and unity in the life of the church. The author reminds his readers that they are no longer alienated, independent beings, but people who belong to each other in unity. And that will mean stripping away the old self and exemplifying the truth as revealed in Christ. Let us turn now and hear this relevant word of instruction. Today's reading is from Ephesians 4, 25 through 32, from the New Revised Standard Version of the Bible. So then, putting away falsehood, let all of us speak the truth to our neighbors, for we are members of one another. Be angry, but do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger, and do not make room for the devil. Thieves must give up stealing, Rather, let them labor and work honestly with their own hands, so as to have something to share with the needy. 
Let no evil talk come out of your mouths, but only what is useful for building up, as there is need, so that your words may give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, with which you were marked with a seal for the day of redemption. Put away from you all bitterness and wrath and anger and wrangling and slander, together with all malice. And be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ has forgiven you. Have you ever wondered what you are supposed to do with your life? Have you ever longed to be used by God for some good purpose in the world, even just once? To have that clear sense that for one moment of your life at least, you happen to be in the right place at the right time, and something good came of it. We all long for those moments, don't we? I was talking to someone recently. She'd been working as an EMT for uh, three or four years, but was looking to pursue a career in an unrelated field. She applied for a particular job, got the call back, and breezed through the first interview. The second interview was scheduled over lunch at a restaurant with two of the company's top executives. During the lunch interview, a woman at a nearby table began screaming for help. Her toddler was choking. Is there anyone who can help, she asked. Someone, please, my baby. This EMT, in the middle of her interview, got up, walked over to the mother and child, and calmly intervened. Once the baby was breathing again and the mother was reassured that everything would be okay, she walked back to her table, sat down, and said, I'm sorry, where were we? At which point, one of the executives said to her, You're hired. She told me later, I, I was just in the right place at the right time. I was used for something good. I talked with a survivor of a deadly shooting incident who himself was shot while intercepting one of the gunmen. He saved many lives by his actions. He was hailed as a hero by the media, but he rejected that label. With deep humility, he said, God put me there for a reason. I believe that God used me in that moment. And it happens more often than we know, and most often in far less dramatic ways. But there are moments in our lives when we find ourselves in the right place at the right time, and something good comes out of it. You're driving down the highway in the middle of nowhere when you spot a stranded motorist on the shoulder and you just know it's your turn. Or you're at the clinic for your last chemotherapy treatment and you strike up a conversation with someone who's just getting his first and he's terrified. And so you speak to him the words that only you can speak. You say, you can do this. You can. The right place, the right time. But instead of waiting around for those moments to arise in our lives, what if we actually lived in such a way that we simply assumed that wherever we happen to be, at whatever time it happens to be, we are already and always in the right place at the right time? What if we lived as though at any moment, in every moment, we might be used by God 
for something good. As we continue this series on the peace prayer, remember that a a prayer is, it's not a proclamation. The peace prayer is not about what we intend to do. We don't roll out of bed every day and say, all right, let's see, um, where can I find some hatred in the world today so I can love a little? Where can I find a little doubt so I can bring some faith or darkness so I can bring some light? Uh, God, send me a sad person today so I can make them joyful. And the peace prayer is not a checklist of good intentions that once each box is checked, we can then hand it over to God to prove that we did some good things in the world. The peace prayer is precisely that, a prayer. And prayer is not so much something we do, but something God does in and through us. Prayer shapes us. And in this particular prayer, we're asking God to fashion us into instruments so that God can use us in, in every place, in any time, trusting that we are always in the right place at the right time. The prayer begins with this petition, make me an instrument of your peace, and then it goes on to speak of particular places and times in which God might use us as instruments. The first of which is where there is hatred. What is hatred? Where does hatred come from? Hatred, as we know, is is the feeling of intense dislike and disdain for someone or something. You might say that you hate broccoli or you hate rush hour traffic or you hate it when the Broncos lose or when the alarm doesn't go off and you're late for work. This kind of hatred, this kind of hatred has no moral implications or consequence. You can hate your broccoli and still be a good person, mostly. But there's another kind of hatred that is tearing our world apart today and always has. It is the intense dislike or disdain for the other that is cloaked in moral superiority and fueled by the absence of empathy. This kind of hatred is is perceiving the other as inferior, as, as less than, less than worthy, less than human, less than the image of God. And this kind of hatred is not innate, it's learned. And it's learned often through the stories and stereotypes that are handed down to us by our families, our communities, our tribes and religions and institutions, even some churches. We might ask our ancestors of old, is there anyone we just don't like? What about the Palestinians? And we're told, less than. What about the blacks, the Asians, the Latinos? less than. What about the homeless, the incarcerated, immigrants and gays? Less than. And when we humans start from a place of seeing others as less than anything, we're often willing to do just about anything to them. We'll take their land, we'll bomb their homes, we'll enslave them, marginalize them, scapegoat and condemn them. But hatred also arises out of a sense of personal grievance or injury, whether real or perceived. 
Someone does something to us, says something about us, slights us, harms us, abuses, or offends us, and we cloak our personal outrage in moral superiority. They become to us less than, so that then we can justify our evil actions against them. It's this kind of hatred that, that inspired terrorists to fly planes into the, into the Twin Towers in New York. It's what inspired the Nazis to build the gas chambers of Auschwitz. It's what leads to road rage and mass shootings and violent mobs storming the Capitol with lynching rope in one hand and a Bible in the other. We don't have to look very far to witness hatred or to experience it. It lives in some form in every one of us. A baker was asked to bake and decorate a cake for a going-away party for a church's departing pastor. And the wording on the cake from Philippians 1.3 was supposed to read, I thank my God upon every remembrance of you. But when the cake actually arrived at the farewell party, the inscription read, I thank my God upon every remembrance of you. Can you name some people whom, when you remember them, make you think, my God? In today's scripture, the, the writer of Ephesians is addressing this problem in the church in Ephesus. He's writing to new Christian converts there who are struggling with, with making the connection between their new life in Christ and their former way of living. Before, they were pagans in their lives. They, they had no guiding presence in their life to which they were accountable, no God conscience to guide their daily conduct. They, they essentially had lived their entire lives however they pleased. They could speak or act as they wished with no moral dilemmas to resolve. Until, of course, they heard the Christian gospel and they had to try to conform their lives to it. Uh, something changes in that moment, according to the writer of Ephesians. God begins to go to work in your life. Christ makes his home in you. He begins to, to change your essential nature. And the writer says that you can see the evidence of that inward change in your outward expressions of kindness and generosity, mercy and love, peacemaking, gentleness, self-control. He says, you should be able to look at the life of a Christian and actually see the tangible difference that following Christ has made. But that's sometimes hard because once you learn how to hate, it's really hard to unlearn it. Once your go-to move is to make someone less than whenever they hurt you, it's really hard to see them as worthy of love. Well, things in Ephesus were apparently getting out of control. People were arguing with each other. Some were just downright furious with each other. Gossip was making its way up and down every pew. Fights were breaking out in the parking lot after trustees meetings. It was a serious case of church behaving badly. So the writer of Ephesians sends them this letter saying, enough is enough. 
Be angry, but do not sin. Let no evil talk come out of your mouths. Put away from you all bitterness and wrath and anger and wrangling and slander together with all malice and be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ has forgiven you. Well, did the letter work? We don't know for sure. But if it did, it didn't happen all at once, that is for sure. Because hatred has to be unlearned. And love, as our peace prayer reminds us, has to be sown. I love that image. Love doesn't just take root all at once and and just bear fruit. Love needs soil and air. And especially it needs a lot of time and patience to grow. So where there is hatred, we pray, let me sow love. Are you willing to walk the fields, to work the soil, to sow the seeds of love, and to commit over time to their growth and flourishing? The antidote to hatred is the giving of your time and your patience and your presence. I mentioned last week that the peace prayer has for decades been attributed to St. Francis, the 12th century Italian mystic and preacher, but it turns out that he didn't really write the prayer after all. And I feel badly for St. Francis. It looked like he had a real win there for a while, but After official review, they they took it off the scoreboard. But St. Francis has always been remembered and honored as a peacemaker. And passed down from the 14th century is this legend about his peacemaking adventures. The legend is about the townspeople in a little Italian village called Gobbio. And these townspeople were, they're being terrorized by a fearsome wolf. This wolf was devouring not only the local animals, but also the citizens themselves. And fear of this beast so consumed the people that when they went outside the city walls, they would arm themselves as if going to battle. Those who traveled alone and encountered the beast never returned. Eventually, no one dared to go outside the city walls. While staying in Gabillo, Francis heard about the plight of the citizens and this wolf. And against everyone's advice, Francis decided to confront the wolf, making the sign of the cross, putting his trust in God. Francis, accompanied by some of the townspeople, walked outside the city gates and followed the road leading to the wolf's den. The wolf, seeing the crowd coming into his territory, charged at the saint, but Francis ordered them, the wolf, saying, Brother wolf, I command you in the name of Christ, don't. By the way, don't try this at home. The wolf immediately closed his mouth, stopped charging, and like a lamb, laid himself at the feet of the saint. Brother wolf, said Francis, You have done such terrible things. 
You deserve the gallows. All the citizens of Gabeo complain about you. You become their enemy. But I want to make peace between you and them. If you stop offending them, says Francis, they will forgive your offenses. Do you agree? And the wolf, as wolves do, nodded in agreement. He went on, I understand very well, Brother Wolf, that you did these terrible deeds out of hunger, so you will be fed every day if you promise not to hurt the animals or the townspeople ever again. And with that, the deal was struck. The saint and the wolf made their way inside the city gates to the piazza. As the townspeople assembled, Francis preached a sermon and publicly stated the terms of this peace agreement between them and the wolf. The townspeople gave praise and thanks to God for freeing them from the jaws of the cruel beast. And the wolf lived peacefully for two more years within the walls of Gubbio. He received food daily as he went from door to door. He no longer harmed anyone. And he gradually won the hearts of all the citizens who grieved deeply over his eventual death. I know, it sounds like a childish story, which would make it more of a fantasy detached from the real world. But scholars actually believe that what came to be symbolized in the wolf originally was a roaming bandit, a bandit who was terrorizing Gubbio, which makes it not only a real story, but a believable one. I've mentioned before a little story featured in Time magazine years ago about Michael Weiser, a cantor at a Jewish synagogue in Lincoln, Nebraska. Shortly after Weiser and his family moved into their neighborhood, the grand dragon of the local KKK, Larry Trapp, began harassing and threatening the Weiser family, intent on driving them out of the neighborhood. Trapp was 42 years old, disabled by diabetes, confined to a wheelchair. He began making threatening late-night phone calls and sending hate mail to Weiser. Weiser traced where it was all coming from and learned more about Trapp's story. He decided to start calling his tormentor back. He would leave messages on Trapp's answering machine. Weiser called them love notes. He would ask, why do you hate me? Don't you want people to love you? Don't you want to be a different person? I know you're disabled. Do you need a ride to the grocery store? And for weeks, Weiser kept calling, leaving love notes, offering help. Eventually, Trapp just couldn't take the kindness anymore. He called Weiser back. He confessed. He said, I want to get out of this. I just don't know how. That evening, Weiser brought dinner to the Klansman's home. His wife brought a silver ring as a peace offering. A friendship was formed, and weeks later, Trapp's health suddenly declined. So the Weisers moved Trapp into their home. They cared for him until his death in 1992. 
and now today Larry Trapp, the one-time Grand Dragon of the KKK, is buried at Wayuka Cemetery in the South Street Temple section with a Star of David on his headstone where there is hatred let me sow love do you believe that even the wolves of this world can be redeemed by love like a sower tending the fields are you willing to walk the land and to work the soil to sow the seeds of love and commit to their flourishing if you're dealing with a wolf in your life and you desire to sow seeds of love, I have three very simple suggestions. First, just be yourself. Not more than, not better than, not other than. I love that Francis called that terrorizing beast brother wolf. Even the enemy was an equal worthy of respect. Jesus put it this way, remember, let the one who is without sin cast the first stone. Second, be vulnerable. Make the journey toward the other unarmed. Anger, vindictiveness, revenge, and the need to be proven right these are all weapons that will only escalate the situation. Francis walked toward that wolf with only the sign of the cross, the very symbol of nonviolent vulnerability and the renunciation of vengeance. And even on the cross, Jesus prayed, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they're doing. And third, be compassionate. Put yourself in the shoes of the other. Ask yourself, what is this person lacking? What are her needs? The truest meaning of compassion is not sympathy or solace, but feeling what the other is feeling. And what did Francis say to the wolf? He said, I understand very well that you did these terrible deeds out of, out of hunger. It was lack of food that had to be addressed for peace to reign. And this is why the Apostle Paul once wrote, if your enemies are hungry, feed them. If they're thirsty, give them something to drink. For by doing this, you will heap burning coals on their heads. I know that throwing burning coals on someone's forehead sounds like a violent thing to do, but, but in the first century world, people heated their homes with fire. They cooked their meals with fire, and sometimes that person's fire would go out during the night. And before they could cook their next meal or heat their home, they'd have to go to a neighbor's house to get burning coals in order to relight their fire. So how do you love even the most difficult people? You learn what they really need deep down. And when you offer it to them, it's like 
relighting a fire, a fire that has gone out in their life. And the lights, they finally go back on, and that flame begins to flicker once again. Our takeaways for today. God always puts you in the right place at the right time. In God's eyes, there are no less thans or other thans. Sowing the seeds of love requires you to walk the fields where hatred persists, to work the soil there, and to stay a while. Thanks for tuning in to this week's podcast. And if you'd like more information, go to www.gosaintandrew.com. See you next week.